0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and it's good to be with you. My guest in the studio today is one of Australia's most high profile feminists. Clementine Ford has been writing columns and books about gender issues for more than a decade. Her books, Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, have become best-selling feminist bibles, and she's built a huge online community of women and girls who take inspiration and comfort from her honest and personal posts. In this conversation, she opens up about body image, sex, death and dating, all the big things. Clementine Ford, welcome. It is such a pleasure to be here with you, Edwina. Oh, look, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and (laughs) here we are. Um... I'd like to take you right back to the beginning. Um, you had a relatively unconventional childhood in so as you grew up in the, the Middle East. travelling circus. That's-
1: <laughs>
0: no, I grew up in the Middle East because of my dad's
1: job. And of course, you know, white people retain the right to call themselves expatriates rather than immigrants. So I grew up in an expatriate community. Um, and it was, I mean, the politics of that aside... Actually, growing up in Oman was just so wonderful. I mean, people always say to me, "What was that like?" And I'm, I think, well, it was fine. Like it was my childhood. I, don't, I don't have any basis for comparison uh, until I'm turned
0: 12. I have no idea what it would be like to grow up in Australia. Did you have a sense, you know, living in an expat community? Was there a sense of kind of them and us, or was was did you feel like, you know, were your friends locals and and international kids, and like like how how did that play? I mean, when I moved to England when I was 12,
1: my world suddenly became extremely white uh, because before then I went to an international school. So I was surrounded by lots of different cultural backgrounds and lots of different kinds of people, lots of people of colour. Um, that was just normal to me. And, you know, I don't, I don't think at all that there was a sense of us versus them. There's there is sort of a weird insularity though in expatriate communities, and that's the weirdest thing about it. Actually, is that everyone leaves. Mm. Yeah, so it sort of feels a little bit like, in some ways, it was really it was a really helpful way to grow up because I am very adaptable. Like it's given me a lot of uh, good skills to deal with life um, and work, and it's given me a lot of good skills. I think in terms of um, dealing with people. Some people would disagree that I'm a good people person, (laughs) but yeah, you know, like I think that kind of children as well, most of us just want to fit in. And I definitely was not confident enough to be the kind of, you know, outsider, the cool outsider. I wish I could have been a cool outsider, but I really deeply wanted to fit in. So everywhere I went, you know, I grew up in the Middle East, but I did spend two years at boarding school in Toowoomba when I was eight and then went back to Oman at 10. And then at 12, we moved to England for a couple of years. And then we moved to Brisbane for a year and then finally finished my high school in Adelaide. So I went to a lot of different schools and certainly wasn't extremely popular at any of those schools, but I figured enough out about how to kind of like blend in and Mm. which sort of sucks really, you know, to kind of suggest that children need to learn how to blend in in order
0: to survive the school day. But it was helpful. There's some truth in that, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's. I think children have a strong sense of what is quote-unquote normal and what is not, Mm. and that's shaped by a whole lot of of different things, but probably Mm. most profoundly by school.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that really frightens me about online kind of culture now is that, you know, we know how awful it can be if you're a bullied child. But when we were at school, we would finish the end of the day and go home and at least, you know, and hopefully we weren't being bullied at home as well, but there was some sense of a refuge. Mm. You know, you could get away from it, even if it just was walking down to the creek near your house and sitting there and reading a book or whatever. You could escape whatever hellish kind of behaviour you were being exposed to at school, whereas now kids, it's relentless, you know, and, and I see that in some of the practice that, you know, some of the teenagers that try and troll me you know, they and they they use methods like adding me to group chats where they've kind of spent you know the last twenty pages of chat talking about how disgusting I am or whatever, or sharing like really misogynistic memes just to upset me. Mm. Um, and I'm just kind of I just kind of roll my eyes and oh like, exit, the, exit the chat, you know. But if I were a school kid being added, you know, and you leave and then they add you back, and I, I just I don't know how a lot of these kids are actually making it through the day.
0: I mean, a lot of them aren't, which is the tragedy. I know. I know it's really, really scary when you were sort of you know this in the in the pre- England years in the in the Oman years, um it was you and your brother and your sister and your parents. Mm. What sort of a household did you have? Um, well, I suppose it wasn't traditional
1: in the sense that you know we had very defined gender roles. I mean, they were defined in the sense that my father worked and my mother wasn't in formal paid employment. Of course, Mm -hmm. she did work, you know. She worked as a mother and she also worked as... That whole sort of scene is very, you know, you put on lots of dinner parties and so she was a a wife. She was a a business wife. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wouldn't say that she didn't work. But she was also, I don't know, my mum was a very complicated, interesting woman who had her own sort of lots of baggage from her own childhood where she's got all this inherited trauma there. Her mother went went through the war and, you know, all of these complications that kind of, I guess, shape a person and how they are. And she had capability to do so much more than she ended up doing because she was pulled out of school when she was 13 and forced to go out and work even though she had all of this potential at school. Was that because they were poor? It's really hard to say because my grandmother... So just to give you a little bit of very quick backstory, my grandmother was from Lithuania. She was about eight or nine years old when the war started. Um, she spent the first bit of the war in hiding uh, in a cottage on her aunt's farm um, and then ended up, you know, once once Germany had kind of entered Lithuania, they were forced marched west towards Germany digging trenches along the way, and she's still a child. Mm. And then... She she real her brother volunteers to go and fight with the German side um, because he thinks that that's how he can help his family. And so then she wanted to follow her brother and the Luftwaffe. I think was taking ch- child soldiers essentially. So she she went on by train to Berlin, um, joined the Luftwaffe as a child because she really was being horrifically abused in the camp, and she wanted a handbag, wow, and a smart uniform. And then finally the war sort of draws to an end she defects with some of the Ger- some of the german soldiers who were boyfriends of some of the women that she knew ends up in a dis- displaced persons camp in germany winds up in england marries uh winds up in guyana my grandfather was guyanese and she marries and ends up there and she's has my mother when she's 17 years old and four children by the time she's 22 mm. you know so she her entire childhood was spent in incredibly trauma- traumatizing conditions, you know, she talked about having been sexually abused and raped repeatedly. And so her attitude was always that men had done so many horrible things to her that she would spend the rest of her life making them provide for her, mm. basically. That was how she was going to get them to pay her back mm. and that she would never give them any of her feeling. She would, she would, you know, make them feel good, but she would make them provide for her. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question that I don't think that they were poor, but... My grandmother was always looking, I guess, to keep them afloat.
0: Mm.
1: But also I, want, I have wondered, it's difficult because both she and my mum are dead now, but I have wondered whether or not there was an element. My mum was, like, really smart. She was a really voracious reader. Um, she had just been accepted into the sort of the stream at high school to go into the, you know, the quote-unquote smart classes. And I've wondered whether or not my grandmother was just really
0: resentful of that. That she had some opportunities that. Um, yeah. Mm.
1: And so she pulled her out of school, made her go on work, made her lie about her age, because by this stage, you know, you, there were labor laws in England that 13 year olds couldn't go out to work. Um, made her lie about her age, which my mother was humiliated about. And then my mum just never finished high school, never had any formal university education. I mean, one of the most, like, the fiercest readers I've ever known, totally self educated. And so I look at her story and I think, What could you have been if you'd had all
0: of the support that people, all people should have? The flip side of that is the frustration that she must have felt. Of course. You know, I mean, and I think that was probably quite common for women in her generation and and, and earlier Uh, generations.
1: And the social anxiety as well because she really, she didn't have a father and she lacked the love and support of a mother. You know, she spent her whole life wanting her mother, wanting the most basic thing that we all want, which is just, the love of our mothers, and she just never got it. So she was really troubled in lots of ways, which meant that our upbringing wasn't traditional either in that sense of having my mum didn't wake up and get us off to school. You know, she would still be sleeping at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and we'd call her from school, you know, we need you to come and pick us up, and she'd answer the phone groggily because she'd stay up all night reading her books. Mm -hmm. She'd answer the phone and she'd say, oh, yes, yes, I'm coming. And then, you know, half an hour would pass, we'd call again and she's woken up again. So we'd be left sitting at the school gates for two or three hours every day. Was she depressed? Absolutely, yeah. You know, and this was the 80s and the 90s, undiagnosed depression. Just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of, I think, a lot of tragedy in my mother's life which really influenced what our house was like. I mean, it was a very happy home, you know, it was, as a lot of troubled mentally unwell, brilliant people tend to be very big highs, very big lows. Mm -hmm. We definitely lacked stability and it's left me with some sense of it's that child within that's kind of still constantly scrabbling for attention and care and stability and, but, you know, still the most important figure in my life and always will be. How about your father? <laughs> um, I love my father and we are very similar in lots of ways. So that sort of similarity is, bonds us together, but it also makes us fight a lot. And obviously we have completely different political views, which is a struggle,
0: and that's, that's become more pronounced in recent years. Is I mean, that because you've been more vocal about your politics or because politics has become more entrenched generally?
1: Oh, it's probably just a lot of, a lot of different things. You know, I'm, I've become more vocal. He's gotten older and he's a pretty classic boomer. Um, You know, I see someone who has vastly different political views to me, ones that I find absolutely abhorrent. But I also remember, you know, listening to musical theater soundtracks with him and playing cards all night. And it's complicated. And anyone who wants to pretend that their relationships with the people who they politically oppose but are also familiarly connected with, anyone who wants to pretend that that is not a complicated scenario is either very lucky or lying to themselves.
0: Mm. So when you arrived in England at 12 years old, did you blend in?
1: Um, I tried to.
0: It was a shock for me in
1: lots of ways. It was a culture shock because I'd come from a country that was Quite liberal for the region, but that also had modesty laws. Um, from adolescence on, basically, girls were required to to dress in a certain way. And I, you know, we left there and turned up to the seaside town that we moved to in England. And you know, all these girls my age, we were twelve, wearing you know tiny little miniskirts and little crop tops. And in, I mean, in some ways, I was completely blown away by it. I just was not my experience at all. And then in other ways I was totally envious of this sort of freedom with which they kind of walked around with all of this sexual confidence, which I didn't have any of. And I look at photographs from that time actually and the difference of a year is really astonishing. You know, in one when we've just arrived I'm sort of sitting there lulled about on a couch wearing these quite childish clothes. I was like a plump child, cute and round, and then i was terribly insecure about my body so i sort of developed an eating disorder um very quickly and in england yeah lost an enormous amount of weight and of course everyone around me was praising me for it congratulations you look so amazing well done um and lost a lot of weight and then started dressing the way that the girls around me dressed which was really exciting and felt really cool and sexy at the time um And so I see these difference, these two photos I'm thinking in particular, you know, one is this like distinct child and then another is also a distinct child but someone who looks like she's pretending to be a lot older than Mm -hmm. she is. Um, You know, I started smoking and drinking and uh, I was wild for me but I actually wasn't (laughs) wild by anyone else's standards. I've always been a control freak. So one of the ways that I've kind of managed my own anxieties and insecurities is through control, which was largely what having an e- eating disorder was about for me. It was trying to control my body, both the physical size of it, but also control my situation, the situation around me, by saying this is the one thing I can control. I can control how many calories I put into my body. Um, of course, you think it feels like control, but it's completely out of control. Um, so it wasn't like I was, you know, climbing out the windows and going and meeting boys in the park at 2 a.m. Because I was kind of still quite terrified of what it meant to be an adult. So I was doing it all in a very controlled mm. fashion, you know. I drank and I smoked cigarettes and but I did it in a in a way that was that felt safe. It also just made you feel like you didn't care about anything, you know, like I smoke. Yeah. I'm like just, just so disaffected. Um <laughs> With drinking as well, I mean, I could go into the pub and order four snake bites and (laughs) they knew, they all knew that we were underage but they just racked them up. money in the till. Yeah, and they figured like, well, it was a small town, you know. That's just what is done here, you know. I was really lucky actually that no one took terrible advantage of me. Someone tried once in a, well, I worked at an ice cream shop there when I was um I'd gone through my like butterfly transformation. You know, I'd lost all this weight and I'd become very glamorous in my head. Um, and I worked at this this ice cream shop and everyone wanted, all the girls that I went to school with wanted to get a job at Martin's ice cream shop because that was that was where the cool girls worked. And Martin was fun and he let you smoke out the back and he'd, you know, buy your drinks for you. Not that you well, he'd take you to the pub and buy you drinks. Oh,
0: yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> what a great guy. Um, Not at all creepy, Martin.
1: No, and I remember you know, getting the job there and thinking that, that it wasn't, that was the thing that made it clear that I'd made it into whatever it was that I thought I wanted to make it into. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to work with the girls at Martin's shop. And so I got this job and Martin and I, you know, I was kind of like, I loved the way that he made me feel like an adult, you know, classic Roma behavior. Really like respected me, spoke to me in a way that indicated he didn't think I was a child, you know, and it was wonderful because his friends. I mean, this was a thirty six year old guy. His wife had just had a second baby. Mm. Um, his friends would come in and he would sort of sweep his arm across the, you know, gesturing across the ice cream shop, and he'd say, "Look at," and these girls, all the girls he worked from were like 13, 14, Look at all these beautiful young girls I get to work with. And that friends would be like, oh, and I remember one incident in particular where he came up behind me. I was serving. It was just so blatant. It was just, he must, it was just so blatant, so entitled. And he would have just thought there's no problem with this. And I was serving a couple and he came up behind me in the shop and he kind of like tiptoed two of his fingers up the back of my leg, up to my skirt. And I was just so flattered by his attention because Martin was just the coolest guy ever. And I just kind of like playfully swatted his hand away and I was like, oh, Martin, stop. And then I remember it kind of culminated in, uh, th- this isn't le- leading to a really traumatising story, by the way, just for everyone listening, but I remember um, he and he was telling me, he'd, ta- he'd taken me to the pub one day and bought me, you know, all these snake bites to drink and was talking to me like a real adult woman, you know, telling me all of his marital problems And I was sitting there listening sympathetically and saying, it must be terrible, Martin, that your wife won't have sex with you anymore. I mean, she had a two month old baby. Mm. And he was saying, yeah, and I, you know, I have to go to sex workers. I mean, obviously he didn't use that word, but I have to go to sex workers all the time. And I was like, she's a terrible wife. Um, And I'm 13, by the way. Mm. And, you know, he was telling me about this drink perno. And he said, Oh, you know, I should give you some perno sometime. You know, it's you drink it one night and you don't really get drunk and then you drink water the next day and it all hits you. And I was like, Oh, that sounds really interesting, Martin. And so one day he invited me up to their apartment, their apartment was on top of the shop and he invited me up there and said, "Oh, come up, you know, Sue, I think that was his wife's name. Sue's out with the girls, um, come up and I'll, you know, I'll pour you a glass of perno. I was like, okay. So I went up there and I was sitting on the couch drinking this perno. And I suddenly, that was when I was, I suddenly thought to myself, this is a really bad situation. But I didn't think this is a bad situation because he is a creepy old pedophile. I thought he's gonna find out that I'm not mature enough to handle whatever the situation. And is. he's
0: gonna judge me and find me lacking. Yeah, and he's mm-hmm. gonna
1: think that I'm just a baby. And and I felt terribly insecure about it. And he, as we were sitting there drinking, I was sitting on one of the couches opposite him, and he started saying, "You know, you're such a tease. You're such a flirt. Um, you're all talk, though." And I was like, "No, I'm not." And he said, "Yeah, you're all talk. I bet if you, if I bet if I hu- if I dared you to come over and hug me right now, you wouldn't do it." And I was like, "Of course I would." And I sort of went over to him and gingerly, kind of like, patted him on the shoulder. And the only thing I can say, it's going to sound weird when I say to his credit because there is nothing to his credit in the situation at all, but clearly his whole kind of M.O. was to groom to the point where he made it feel like it was the girl leading the way mm-hmm. because he didn't physically force me to do anything. Um, I guess he kind of said he realized that what he wanted to happen wasn't going to happen. So we finished our drinks. Then he was like, oh, well, we better go back downstairs. So we did. So luckily I, you know, nothing awful was done to me that day, but for years I thought Martin is the coolest boss I've ever had. Oh, he was so cool. I used to tell that story about how cool he was that he took me up to his house to give me bloody hard liquor Mm. and how ashamed I felt that like, I just wasn't Grown up enough to kind of respond and be proved to him that I was the adult woman that he'd thought that I was. And of course, now, you know, I'm older than he was at the time. And I just think, fuck, man, that guy needs to be in jail. Mm.
0: It's it's so much part of, I think, an adolescent girl experience mm. of not being able to see your own agency or not being able. It's not even about seeing your own worth. It's that, sort of separate from that. It's about mm. not being able to see that there is a version of the story in which you can be the boss.
1: Well, part of, I think part of the reason why we're drawn to those situations or why it's so easy for us to be groomed into them is because we do desperately want to be seen as adult and mature and beautiful and desirable and there is a there is a space in that where you know I've spoken to women who when they were teenagers they had relationships with adult men where those relationships are illegal and they they recognize in some sense that that was wrong now but they also don't feel like
0: they were victims
1: no, there's no part of them that feels like they were taken advantage of or that they were damaged in some way that that's how they feel
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but they also look at the situation and they say but that but it was wrong
0: mm. When did the point come where you thought you know, looked at the boys around you and thought, "Oh, yeah, there we are."
1: I think I mean, to an extent, I'm still really scared of
0: that's what I mean.
1: <laughs> I respond. I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day and she finds desire really attractive. So when people desire her, she's really drawn to it and that inspires her desire. And I said to her, I find it absolutely disgusting when someone desires me. I much prefer to, you know, like yearn. (laughs) Yearn fruitlessly. Yearn in unrequited (laughs) fashion uh, because there's no risk then.
0: you know. I mean, you write about this again in, in Fight Like a Girl that that, You know, you dressed in baggy masculine clothes Mm. when you're a teenager. You know, to to quote, to let people know that I was in on the joke that was me. Mm. That sort of boy like complicity. Mm. um, You don't want to embarrass
1: yourself mm. by suggesting that you might think that you can operate on the same like
0: romantic playing field. That you might might be desirable. That you might be hot. That you might be.
1: Yeah. Would how humiliating for anyone to think that you might think that about yourself? Um, I suppose though I started being a little less skittish, probably when I was about 17. You know, I got my first serious boyfriend when I was 18. Um, very serious. We went out for three months. (laughs) Um, God, that's long term. He was very lovely and gentle and, you know, uh, not intimidating
0: at all. So you had your first boyfriend, and he was gentle, and and you're at uni, and there was like lots of kind of you know dating. It was mm. the nineties, two thousands, and and there was like lots of girl power and lots of that kind of stuff in the in the um, in the kind of zeitgeist. And one of the ways that you could be like cool was to be blokey. Was that
1: something yeah. that you experienced? Well, actually, I think that that was probably a little bit pre me going to uni. I think that was more mid nineties because by the time I started, yeah, maybe uni, that was more me at uni. Yeah, and I and I hear women talking about that, and and I think, wow, like it, I just would would not imagine going to university at the time that I did, and having, you know, seeing women wearing grunge clothes and like not shaving their underarms because by the time it, I was kind of really in uni. That whole backlash was well in swing again, and um, you know, Ar- Arielle Levy wrote her book "Raunch, Raunch Contra, the Culture: The Rise of yeah. Female Chauvinist Pigs," and it was very much, you know, for for those of us who were studying gender studies and proudly calling ourselves feminists, because we discovered this cool new club, um, still the awesomest club in the world. Uh, for for those of us who were you know, newly discovering all of these feminist politics, it was very lonely because that was done. It was over. We've like, done that. We've done Look that. at us. We're yeah. so equal. It's so gross.
0: Mm. Um, I mean, but that was you initially, wasn't it, right? Like, oh, Like, yeah, like in your late teens you didn't self-identify as feminist.
1: No. I mean, I did have, I had a notion of gender equality. I, what I said was, you know, of course I believe in gender equality but I would never call myself a feminist because a feminist was different. Feminists were, were gross and ugly and hairy and you know more important than anything men didn't like them and I you know the the thing and I still maintain this now that apart that I'm willing to accept there may be a tiny tiny percentage of women who genuinely do not consider themselves feminists because they genuinely support patriarchy and believe themselves to be lesser than men um but I think that in the vast majority of cases when women shy away from the word feminist, it's because they're scared that it will put men off of them, you know. And to me when I kind of, when it clicked that I rec- I realised that I was so afraid of identifying with feminism because I was so afraid of what men would think, I went, oh, oh, it's still really bad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and actually I, I, you know, I've often said this that I've found nothing more liberating than deciding not to care what men think. I mean obviously that is not a blanket. I still have that insecurity about physical desire and attraction but you know I definitely just don't care what some random Joe on the street thinks about me. You know, when women say that they're when women kind of shy away from feminism or when women conform to patriarchal standards, it's not because of individual men in their lives generally. It's because of the the broader notion of the male gaze. And I no longer care about the male gaze.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, how did sort of your feminist awakening, if you like, um, how did that affect your body image and your disordered eating? Oh, had zero effect on it <laughs> whatsoever. Oh, that's a disappointing answer.
1: I know it is. It's disappointing reality. Um, you know, I just think that it's, it's,
0: it's so ingrained.
1: It's so deeply ingrained. I don't think that it's something that I'll ever get over. You know, it's, it's a, it's a harm that's been done to me as the, as has been done to so many of us that I can try and embrace body positivity, all I like. I can try and throw myself into not worrying about what my body looks like, but it is such a deeply, I mean, it was, it was instilled in me when my brain and neural pathways were still forming. Like it's, it's actually, I think it's actually going to be impossible for me to undo all of that damage. So all I can do is try and live with it in a way that I can, I can try and consciously be healthy about it, but it's actually not something that I was like, "Oh, I've discovered feminism now, and now I recognize that body image is bullshit. Mm. Mm. Um, I just don't think it's ever going to leave me. How about, and that's an honest answer that mm. most people don't give.
0: I think that's really true. How about the way that your body image plays into your view of sex?
1: Well, interestingly, i you know, when I was seventeen, I I had this friend, wonderful woman called Jackie. And I went to school with her and Jackie was very worldly and she had a boyfriend and she'd already had sex. And I remember saying to her one day, she was also like, she was really cool and really nice. So I remember saying to her one day that, you know, I was really scared that the first time I had sex with someone or the first time I took my clothes off in front of a boy that he would point at my thighs and go, yuck, or, you know, point at all my insecurities. And she said to me, Clem, I promise you that if you've got your clothes off they're not going to be thinking about how fat your thighs are. <laughs> um and it kind of stuck with me. It was it was a really powerful thing for her to tell me at that point because it sort of stuck with me to the point where I've never really felt bad when my clothes are off. I felt de- I feel deeply self-conscious when I'm wearing clothes, but when they're off I'd never really feel I guess it's it's good that you can kind of be in the moment. And hopefully I've also had sex with people who aren't assholes um and who wouldn't you know make you feel bad yeah who would kind of participate in a way that's really affirming. joyful and affirming and respectful but weirdly i think that you know i um i put on a lot of weight before i had my baby and then i've sort of over the last few years lost that weight again and um and it's something i consciously set out to do and i know that that's a problematic thing to talk about it's di- it's difficult because you're not ever allowed. It's so so tricky to talk about those things in ways that don't reinforce other people's, um, you know, expectations on weight and so on. But that's something I wanted to do and I chose to do it. And I I was really excited throughout that process and was appreciating my body in different ways again. And part of it was that, you know, it wasn't just about the weight. It was about a lot of unhappiness that I was feeling at the time. But now, weirdly, I've gotten to the point where I'm kind of, you know, the, the lightest that I've been in a really, really long time and my insecurity is quite bad again. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that it's, that's how I think that it's sort of so deeply ingrained is that, and it's not, and it's not actually about the body. I know? was
0: going to say, I think that this is, this is, this has been, this is like sort of the incredible con is yeah. that, is that in some way your body shape or size is is, is inherently linked to your mm. psychological state and i just don't think that's true. Mm. I mean i think that's obviously not true when you look at desperately thin people and 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 you know people mm. on, on all ends of the spectrum who are unable to find kind of peace and mm. and acceptance and it's a really tough one to talk about as you say because people have their different journeys with their bodies and everybody's got their own relationships with mm. their bodies um well and some
1: of it is also you know a physical kind of concern as well that you know i'm single and and i and i have a post baby body you know and what i mean by that is that my i've got some loose skin on my tummy because i grew a human in me for nine months. Mm-hmm. and I have some insecurity about how my you know my vagina might have changed. Um, which I think is common to a lot of to almost all of us who've had vaginal births. Um, and i I guess it's those things are quite difficult to sort of let go of insecurities about because the worst thing that you can imagine is someone turning around in the middle of an intimate moment and kind of pointing out your flaws. Um, again, like I hoped that I wouldn't go to bed with someone who was going to be that much of a dick, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you plan to have your son? Yes, I did in conversation with his dad and,
1: uh, yeah, his dad was less convinced, not because he didn't want to have a child, but because he was worried about, um, money, I guess, all the same concerns that everyone has when they have a child. But, I mean, he adores his son now. He's a great dad. Um, they've got a really good relationship, but yeah, we planned to do it and, uh, luckily happened straight away. Mm. Um, I mean, I've been pregnant twice before, so
0: I knew that I could get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, and had you terminated those pregnancies because wrong time, wrong person? Yeah, I was
1: 25. Yeah. It it was, you know, I was with a steady long-term partner and we loved each other, but he was 23 and I was 25 and. You know we both wanted to do things with our lives and I definitely did not want to have a baby with him. Um and I'm very happy with those choices. Mm. You know, I'm really glad that I the second time I got pregnant, it was shortly after the first time, actually. The first time I was uh I was on the um implanon and I got pregnant. Um and then the second time we were just unlucky. Mm-hmm. And because everyone I don't you know, this is one of the interesting things about anti-abortion rhetoric is that everyone wants to pretend that they've never taken a risk mm. when actually people take risks all the time when they have sex they chance it because mostly there, they, you know there's a small amount of a small window in which you can get pregnant anyway I got unlucky and also I did think about having the second baby but only because this was when my mother was dying and I thought well I should have a baby so that she can see a grandchild before she dies and Also, then I won't have to grieve my mother because I can just, I can just completely replace the relationship that I've had with her with a small child. And then very luckily I realized that that was a terrible idea. (laughs) If I didn't already have no regrets for my choices, you know, people always want to make me feel you could have two beautiful children right now. And I'm like, well, no, because that's not how life works. But also I have a beautiful child and I wouldn't have him if I hadn't made the choices that I'd made in my 20s. Right. And I wouldn't give him up for anything in the world. So what people are saying when they say, well, you could, you shouldn't have done that, you baby murderer, is that you, they would rather me have a potential child mm. who doesn't exist than, and wish away the one who actually is in the world and right now. And
0: who's very loved. and who's, Yeah, and who's wanted and mm-hmm. who I can take care of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How were you affected by your mother's death? Um, I
1: just think that it is something that has completely shaped who I am and I just feel her loss in my life in a deep, profound way that will never, ever be recovered from. But weirdly as well, I think, you know, I often the grief that I feel now is often in relation to my son that, he, you know, I talked to him all the time about Grandma Lucy and um, I feel I feel so sad that he didn't get to meet her, but also that she didn't get to meet mm. him, because I think in lots of ways, as much as I love and adore my mother, and I just can think that she's a completely brilliant person. She was complicated and she wasn't always the best mother that she could be. But I think she would have been a really good grandmother, mm. I think. And I think that being able to be a grandmother would have given her a chance at doing that. I think that she would have been able to do it in a way that wasn't, I mean, you're, you've got a kid. Oh, God, it's so terrifying. And that those early years, they're so relentless that it's difficult for you to even really focus on what's going on at the time that, you know, she and she ended up with three children under five I think I was I was a a surprise Mm. um my dad was working overseas a lot and she was stuck on you know by this stage they'd moved to Australia and she was stuck on my grandparents farm and they weren't very nice to her or supportive and you know she was just stuck there with these three children and I just don't think she enjoyed it very much Mm. I don't think a lot of women enjoy early motherhood very much.
0: And you're right that I think being a grandparent Mm. gives the space for people to actually enjoy the parenting process. You know, Mm. they say all care, no responsibility, and that's kind of true. Do you think that she would have been pleased with the way that you you, you are a mother? I hope so. I mean, she would just adore my
1: son. I think she would probably enjoy watching me mother him. Like I feel like in lots of ways I channel a lot of her with him. It's the anyone who's gone through grief knows that it doesn't go away. It just keeps changing, and you just get better at dealing with it. Maybe yeah, it feels less immediate. It becomes sort of like a low-level hum rather than kind of a blazing roar. But there are times when I'm hit by you know devastating grief over it, and I have a cry, and I just feel her loss so keenly. And then there are other times where I think to myself oh, I uh, see my son doing something or he said something. And I think just a flash of a second, I think, oh, I must call mum and tell her that. Mm-hmm. And then you remember that you can't call them and tell them that. And that always, when I had those feelings, they always used to make me so sad. Like it was like the grief just punched you in the stomach again. But I'm finally at the point now where, and have been for quite a while, where I actually really relish those moments because even though they're over in like a split second, when it's happening, when you're having the thought, I must call my mum and tell her that, it's actually like time just kind of you, you sort of fall into a bubble where you don't remember that they're dead. And in that space, time just extend, extends so that for a beautiful, blissful moment, you they just get to be alive again. Mm, they're close. Yeah. And so then when you kind of come out of it rather than feeling sad, I always feel really grateful.
0: Yeah. Mm. You started, you know, writing, freelance writing for, you know, newspapers and magazines and that kind of thing after uni and you were writing more and more about sort of so-called women's issues, gender issues, those sorts of things. And that's culminated in two massively successful books. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, they are objectively massively successful books. There was um, Fight Like a Girl in 2016 and then just two years later, Boys Will Be Boys. And, you know, they have been extremely widely read and they've earned you a really massive public profile, which is hugely Mm polarised. You know, you come to a festival like All About Women and you are a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, I've seen it, the adoring (laughs) fans of all ages. But then you've also, you know, opened yourself up to the most appalling, heinous trolling. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you deal with that public persona?
1: It's funny because I always think that when I meet people for the first time, I always feel like I'm meeting them just as me and sometimes people say to me, oh, you're a lot nicer than I thought you'd be. And I just think, yeah, because I'm a really nice person.
0: <laughs> but this is it. Like a whole lot of people have a relationship with you and you don't know them.
1: Yeah, that's that's quite strange actually. And I don't take that responsibility lightly either. You know, its I always hated when you met people who you admired and they just treated you like they couldn't be bothered having the chat or like you were annoying them or, you know, let me just quickly sign the book. In fact, I remember this is, and I'm going to say this now because hopefully she'll listen to it. When Boys Will Be Boys came out at the end of 2018, just kind of go, go, go. Um, And I hadn't seen my son for two weeks and I took him with me to Adelaide to do the night there and it was late and, you know, we were in the signing queue and he sort of losing his temper and, um, I remember saying that you know, because sometimes people want to have photographs taken with you, which is really nice. And I'm always happy to do it. Um, and this, I, I, but I decided, okay, I better not get photos tonight because otherwise that's gonna make it go longer. Anyway, this woman came and she was very excited to meet me and have have her book signed. And I was like signing, it. and I was half of my attention was on my son as well and and his impending meltdown meltdown. And she said. Um, can i get a photo taken with you and i said i sort of the irritation flashed across my face and it wasn't at her it was at the situation it was the balancing of the situation but it flashed across my face and i and she saw it and i didn't hide it in time and i said oh it, it's just that you know my son and i said okay let's do it quickly and and then she left and you know that happened over a year ago and i still think about it all the time <laughs> and i cuz i couldn't as soon as she left i just thought oh god i've just i i didn't want
0: her to feel dismissed
1: she'd been really excited to meet me and I didn't want to her to go away and go well that made me feel terrible because I've had those situations in signing queues with authors I've admired and I've always felt so awful about it and I've, I've sort of wanted to like somehow reach out and find her and say it
0: wasn't you it was just my child and I'm so sorry woman in Adelaide signing queue I hope you're <laughs> listening um you're single again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reminding me,
1: Anwena. <laughs> I know. Well, here I we like are. I being single. Being single's great.
0: Um in the whole dating world that you know you're, you're you're dating and you're you're on the apps and you're doing all of that, how are you negotiating, you know, gender roles in that environment now with your public profile and mm. with everything that comes with that?
1: I guess I don't often feel unsafe in the world or even with dating or anything like that. But I suppose I've I worry that there might be some people who, who kind of put on a show to get close to me so that they can embarrass me in some way or reveal private things about me. That worries me a lot. When there are men out there who have made it their business to troll you and, you know, relentlessly stalk and harass you online and, you know, show the efforts of that stalking to other people, it does worry me. And so it's kind of made me a little bit, gun shy, I guess at the moment. So, but when it comes to like the actual gender roles, I actually think I'm a lot luckier than some of my friends who are dating online because I think the men that I'm interacting with, I I haven't, I haven't come across anyone who has tried to, you know, put me in my place, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, pull any like horrible moves in bed or anything like that. And I think it's because they're scared of me. I think it's because they're terrified that if they put a foot out of line that I'm going to go on screen social cap, media and cap their <laughs> dating profile and say, ladies, stay away. <laughs> so in lots of ways
0: I actually have this enormous power, you know, I'm like a superhero. So what do you think is the ideal? If, if your son grows up to identify as male and grows up heterosexual, what sort of a relationship do you want for him? I, I suppose I would like to model to him the kind of womanhood as as he's
1: growing up that suggests that women are independent, that we have a right to our own bodies, that we don't exist just to cater to him and his needs. And I just think that that's one of the biggest shocks to women is what they partner with men that they think are progressive and good, kind men. And even those men just end up being so disappointing when it comes to household labor and, and allowing the parenting slack to be picked up by her all the time. And, and yes, I'm generalizing, but the statistics show that my generalization is correct. Mm. Uh, so I'd like him to see women as humans. And to also, one of the things that I find men don't do anywhere near enough of is actually asking women about their lives. So I'd like him to partner with someone who he expresses interest in you know, and not just interest in her physicality or interest in how she makes him feel, but an interest in her life and in her thoughts and respects her take on things and, and consults with her about, you know, what her perspective on things is.
0: Well, Clementine Ford, he's a lucky kid. <laughs>
1: Thank you. I hope that he feels the same when he's older.
0: Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's
1: always wonderful talking to you, Edwina.
0: Clementine Ford appeared at All About Women alongside Flex Mammy in a conversation called Finding Your Voice. You can find a link to the video recording in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.